Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A16Z podcast. In today's episode, A16Z general partner Katie Hahn interviews Susan Rice, the former national security advisor and U.S. ambassador to the U.N. She's the author of a memoir, Tough Love. This is a candid talk in which Ambassador Rice discusses leadership, what it is, how to achieve it, and how to focus under the extreme pressure of global crisis. She also talks about U.S. foreign relations and what role the tech community can play. This conversation took place at our most recent innovation conference, the A16Z Summit. It was previously released on YouTube if you'd like to check it out there. Susan, it's so great to see you again here in LA. And um, this time I get to share you with this audience, which I'm really excited about. Um, You've had such an incredible life and you've been in so many rooms and situations that really very few of us, even in this rarefied room, will ever really get to experience. Um, Aside from being Obama's national security advisor and the ambassador, the US ambassador to the United Nations, you were also the youngest assistant secretary of state in the Clinton administration. Um, and you were a Rhodes Scholar, you have your doctorate from Oxford, and of course, all of these experiences meant that you had a front row seat to some pretty interesting situations, things like the Snowden leaks, North Korea, negotiations with Iran, um, the war against ISIS, the Ukraine, and now you're on the board of Netflix, you write for the New York Times, and you've just published your memoir, Tough Love. So Susan, in Tough Love, You write uh, that when you were in your younger years, when you were 32, people said about you that you were smart and dynamic and decisive, but they also said you were, and I quote, brash, demanding, and impatient. And I'm wondering if these traits on balance, do you think they were a bug or a feature as you rose through the ranks of the government? Well, first of all, Katie, thank you so much for doing this. And good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you. Um, I, thank you. I, uh, I would say that I had a mix of qualities at age 32 that were, on the one hand, feature, and the other hand, bug. On the feature side, you know, I do think you know, I had a strong preparation. I was hungry. I was driving, driving a team to a very particular set of outcomes. That was feature. But I was impatient. I was brash. Um, and... I think that I learned the hard way that I had to adjust some of those characteristics. They were more on the bug side, and they were um, not well suited to the environment in which I was in. This was when I was a very young Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. I'd started the job having worked at the White House previously. I was 32 years old, um, and not only the youngest person by far among the people who worked with me and, and under me, Um, But I was also the mother of a three-month-old breastfeeding son. And the combination of all of those things, plus my characteristics in the the State Department, were, um, I think, uh, off-putting to some. And I had uh, a wonderful set of advisors and mentors, some of whom who took me to the woodshed and delivered a, a dose of tough love at a stage when it was very useful to me. Yeah. And in particular, I know you write about several of those mentors in the book, but is there one that really exemplifies helping you um, overcome some of those, as you said, those characteristics that you, you've deemed were a bug? Well, uh, the most impactful experience was in 1998. Um, I'd been in the job about a year, and 1998 
none of you will recall, but I'll re remind you was the year when not only on the African continent, we had wars break out between Ethiopia and Eritrea, huge war in the Congo, wars in, in West Africa as well. And over the summer, uh, in August, Al-Qaeda attacked our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania and killed 12 Americans and over 200 Kenyans and left thousands wounded and our embassies destroyed. And so it was a really high pressure, high intensity time. And my approach to dealing with all of this was to keep uh, focused on the mission, to you know, drive through the pain, to just you know, stay focused and push our, myself and the team as hard and as fast as we can to deal with all these simultaneous challenges. But just before Christmas, a colleague, a man named Howard Wolpe, who was a former member of Congress from Michigan and was working as a political appointee in the State Department, he took me out to lunch at a really crappy Chinese restaurant near the State Department. And I thought it was just going to be a social occasion. And after a few bites, uh, he came straight out and said, you know, Susan, you're going to fail in this job if you don't change course. You're smart. You're committed, you know your brief, you're hard charging, you've got the support of the Secretary of State and the President, but you are not being sufficiently uh, deferential to, sufficiently appreciative of the expertise of the senior people working with you. And you're not bringing the team along, you're not investing uh, your, your team in the outcomes. You're just driving relentlessly towards an outcome and you're losing people and if you don't, change course, you're gonna fail. And I don't wanna see you fail. And so we then had a conversation, which was obviously you know, pretty bracing for me. But I realized that he was doing this as a huge favor. He was doing this as somebody who cared. He could have basically said, you know, I don't care if you fail. It's not my problem. Yeah. But he took me under his wing and gave me that advice, which enabled me, I think, to be a far more patient, uh, more inclusive, uh, more collaborative leader and manager of teams than I had otherwise been. And that helped me soften some of those qualities that we described as a bug. And so that by the time I completed my tenure at the end of the Clinton administration, I think I really had um, learned and grown in ways that were very valuable. And I think I was able to leave behind a record of success, without which I'm not sure I would be have gone on to do the other things that I ended up doing in the Obama administration. Well, one of the things that stri struck me in reading the book is you were so fortunate to have a number of mentors like that, um, including your own parents. And so I want to take a step back and talk about your origin story, because I'm sure a lot of people in this room are familiar with a lot of your accomplishments. but. Your parents were also really accomplished in their own right. I mean, your dad, um, descended from slaves in South Carolina, went on to become a member of the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, and then he went on also to become an economics professor at Cornell, um, eventually serving as governor of the Federal Reserve Bank and in se several senior roles at Treasury and the World Bank. Your mom had a very different experience. Um, she was um, the daughter of immigrants from Jamaica who settled in Maine which explains your main connection. Um, and she went on to Radcliffe, not only to Radcliffe, but also to become the student body president and then served on the boards of 11 different major public companies. 
Now, that seems, those, all of those things seem like really impressive accomplishments for any person at any time, but really rare, especially for a woman of color at that time. And so I'm just curious, what lessons did you take from these parents. incredible parents you had? Well, I really was blessed with two extraordinary parents who came, as Katie said, from extremely different backgrounds, but they had several things in common. They had a commitment to education, they had a commitment to service, uh, and they had a sense that they had been blessed with the gifts of their parents and grandparents, and it was their responsibility to make the most of those, and the expectation for me and my brother was that we do the same. Um, and as you said, they, you know, their, their background is very different, but on my father's side, he, uh, he grew up in really the, the, the most raw form uh, of Jim Crow and um, brutal segregation in South Carolina, born in 1920. And then, as you said, served at Tuskegee with the Tuskegee Airmen. And his challenge as somebody whose parents and grandparents had both gone to college, his, great, his grandfather, my great-grandfather, was a slave who ended up getting a college education after uh, fighting in the Civil War on the side of the Union Army and founding a school in New Jersey that educated generations of African Americans. So there was a tradition in my father's side of having the, the extraordinary opportunity to attend university. But in his experience, he was so freighted um, with the oppression of bigotry and segregation and so resentful of having to serve in a segregated military in World War II and be expected to prove what to him was absolutely obvious, which was that African Americans could fly and fight as well as anybody. So he left trying to figure out how does an African American man in the 1940s who had already gotten a college education, went on to get his PhD in economics at Berkeley, believe in himself when society is pushing him down. And my mom, from her perspective, a very different set of challenges, but again, the, the daughter of immigrants who came to this country with nothing, sent all their kids to college, um, and the expectation for her was also to excel and succeed. And what they taught me and my brother was, in essence, that we couldn't let other people define us for us. We had to believe in ourselves and know our worth and not let others discount us. My father had a, an expression which was, if my being black is going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem for somebody else, not for me. In other words, what he understood was that bigotry is the function of somebody else's insecurity. And even though there's structural and institutional and legal impediments that he faced every step of the way, he did realize that he got to choose how he thought of himself. And if he let the bigot's definition of him become his own, then the bigot would succeed and he would fail. He would not believe in his own capacity. And so what he and my mother taught me and my brother John is that we were worthy, we were, we were capable, and we had to believe in ourselves. And we would inevitably encounter you know, racism or sexism or ageism or whatever it might be. 
But the way to deal with that is, in, a, in essence, a psychological jujitsu to let that be somebody else's concern, not yours, and to try not to expend your precious mental energy doubting yourself. And that's really hard to do, whether you're a male or a female, a person of color or not. Yeah. Wow, so powerful. Um, I'm wondering also, in addition to the lessons that you were taking from your parents and you wrote about them, I encourage everyone who hasn't read the book to go read for yourself because they're really a set of extraordinary things you took from both your mom and your dad and their extended family. Um, you write a lot about some of the memories you had growing up, um, those summers in Maine. Um, but I'm also curious in writing your book if there are themes that you kind of discovered about yourself that um, helped motivate you to become the kind of successful person that you became? Well, writing the book was a, a real opportunity, a gift of a, a chance to reflect uh, and to think back as to all of the things that influenced me. Because frankly, I, re I realized in writing this that essentially from high school until the day I left the Obama administration, I'd been going at almost you know full speed, nonstop. Yeah. And um, what I really realized is that the most formative experiences were the lessons I learned from my parents and the real challenge I had coming through my parents' divorce. I, you've heard how great my parents were, and they really were, but they absolutely had no business being married to each other. And, and you wrote about that a lot, and I you've write talked a lot about, about it. it. I write yeah, a, lot. a lot about it because it... I realized that I can't explain myself without explaining that experience. Can you unpack that a little? Because I think that's just really so interesting as you found yourself in some of these crisis situations later, um, mostly professionally, but also personally. Explain that a little bit, how, how you think that your parents' own relationship with each other and then their eventual divorce kind of contributed to that. Well, by the time I was about seven, uh, they were fighting constantly. And sometimes violently, and it was really terrifying for me and my brother, who was two years younger than me. And we'd be you know, in bed at night trying to go to sleep, and I'd wake up to them screaming and yelling, and I was scared, frankly, that it could spin out of control. And so I would creep downstairs and spy on them and try to figure out you know, if this was gonna get out of control. And if I feared it might, I'd, I'd intervene sometimes physically, um, but more often actually trying to talk them down and therefore listen to what they were arguing about, what were the, who, who was making what point and you know, where reason lay at seven or eight. So you're doing diplomacy then, really. I mean, really a, pre mediation. a precursor to what came later, I guess, yeah. professionally. I had no idea, obviously, that any yeah. of that would have any relevance, but I... I did um, find myself trying to firefight, in essence. And, and then when I was 10, they actually separated and then went through a very bitter and ugly divorce and a very public custody battle. And so really until I was 15, this thing dragged out in one uh, shape or another. And I had to make a decision about you know, whether I was gonna let it crush me or whether I was going to control what I could control and not try to be weighted down by what I couldn't. I couldn't control them and how they were dealing with each other, but I could control you know, 
how I performed in school and whether I tried to repair my friendships which had suffered and you know whether I was you know going to be an athlete and a student leader and all this stuff and what I learned from all of that is that I could take a hit and keep going and it gave me a degree of confidence in my own resiliency that turns out I think in retrospect to have been probably the most important formative um, revelation that I had early on and rather than feeling like you know this was the worst thing that ever could happen which of course it wasn't but it was bad in, in my experience I realized wow this was really bad but I can still keep doing what I need to do and I think that's that strength was something that I wouldn't know I'd need down the road, but was incredibly valuable. Well, we've talked before, you and I, about how you have an ability, uh, I think you'd agree, to compartmentalize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that it served you well later professionally in times right. of crisis. And, and by compartmentalize in this context, what I mean is, and as I had to do as national security advisor, mm -hmm. for example, when, when there's all this stuff going on, whether it's your parents fighting or, you know, working on the diff most difficult problems and crises in the world when almost every major decision has life and death implications. I found that I was able to do the work of the job and be focused and committed to that work without it affecting me in every day, all day, emotionally and being debilitating. I feel, you know, if we're working on a, 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 a very difficult issue, I felt that weight, I felt that pain, but it didn't become something that I could not cope with. It didn't cripple my ability to focus and do the job functionally. And I think, you know, you have to have some measure of that wherever it comes from to work on those kinds of issues and not, you know, be crushed, for example, mm -hmm. by the weight of the humanitarian crisis in Syria. Well, and you've been in a number of those crisis situations. Obviously, I mean, you just mentioned Syria, the humanitarian crisis. And I'm just wondering, you're going to tie it to this room, what best practices or philosophy to, do you bring to bear, Susan, in moments of real crisis? Well, I think my way of approaching crisis is, first of all, to get super calm. The worse the situation is, the more I kind of just chill out and not uh, freak out. I mean, you wrote about and, the embassy bombings. Yes, yeah, the embassy bombings were an example. So trying to stay calm, trying to gather the information, trying to focus on outcomes that we could control um, and not allow the overwhelming nature of the of the crisis to impede our ability to act rationally and effectively. So in 1998, when the embassies were bombed in Kenya and Tanzania, my focus was on what can we do in the moment to be impactful and effective. We had to get search and rescue teams out in the shortest order to try to save people who were buried in the rubble. We had to get the FBI and the other investigative elements on the ground to gather the evidence so that we could find the perpetrators. We had to support the families of the victims with information and with comfort. Um, 
we had to do all these things in the moment, and so my emphasis was on what can we practically do immediately without, you know, falling apart and despairing. And how also at the same time, and this is what I learned the hard way, became better at as I got uh, more experience, is recognize that you know, the people you are working with process these crises differently than you may, and may need a different kind of support and approach. And so being a compassionate leader that recognizes that you need to provide space for people to, to work through their pain and cope with it while trying to keep them on the focus to be effective. That was where I was lacking at age 32, mm -hmm. and I hope by, say, 52, I'd gotten a little bit better at. Yeah. Well, you know, look, you've clearly been in some really uh, high-pressure situations. Um, and at the time you mentioned the embassy bombings, um, you know, you had Jake, your son, who was practically a newborn at that point, right? He was a um, newborn. He was yeah. a newborn, right? Well, so clearly you've been in these high-pressure situations, but then you add marriage, uh, you add kids, and somehow you're managing a really complicated life, Susan, and you've managed a really complicated life with a great deal of elegance um, as an outsider looking in. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering just as I think about all you've accomplished, and you have two kids we'll talk about in a minute, and I think Ian is here in the audience, your husband. My wonderful husband. Um, but what are, how are you hacking this? How have you done this? And what practical tips do you have for people in the audience? Because I'd sure love to hear them, and I'm sure others would. How do you manage this really robust professional career and yet also a robust personal life? Well, I don't think anybody does it perfectly or to their own satisfaction. What I learned along the way is that there's certain things, again, that you can control. Uh, and those are the ones you should focus on. So I really tried um, to, to take care of myself, to, to sleep as much as I reasonably could, to exercise as much as I reasonably could, um, and to prioritize time with family and friends because that was rejuvenative time um, and gave me sort of the strength and the perspective to deal with the things I couldn't control. Those were all critically important. And then uh, I couldn't have done it, frankly, without an extremely supportive and hands-on partner who you know, was very much engaged in his own high-pressure career yeah. as an executive producer at uh, ABC News, but was hugely helpful with the kids, with my parents who were ailing at the time, uh, and in supporting me. So I was blessed with all of those um, systems of support, but I think the main things that, that most of us uh, can try to prioritize are, you know, taking care of our physical and mental health through basic things like sleeping and exercising, hopefully eating reasonably well, and, uh, and, and cherishing that time with the people you love as what you need to keep giving you fuel. That's great practical advice. I mean, speaking of kids, you have two. We have two. Daughter, daughter Maris, um, who's junior in high school. Yes. And then Jake, who's a senior at Stanford. Yes. And everyone says this about their kids, Susan. Oh, they're my, if who, anyone who has more than uh, one child says, oh, they're so different from each other. 
but you, you kind of take things to a new extreme with your kids. Um, because They took us to an extreme. They took you to an extreme. I mean, um, for those who aren't familiar, I mean, your son Jake, here you are having served in the Clinton administration, um, in the Obama administration, and your son Jake is the president of, was president of the Stanford College Republicans. Yes. And then you have your daughter, uh, and I wish we had a picture of them, but anyone can grab the book and there's pictures of them in the book. Um, Maris, you describe as to the left of you and Ian. Yes. And yet the two of them are very close and also close in age. And how did that happen? And tell, me, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh. <laughs> I know you they were trying are, to raise they, independent thinkers. No, no, no. But. You know, we wonder sometimes what we fed them. And <laughs> we, uh, we really did try to teach them that they should think for themselves and have the courage of their convictions. Uh, and we um, tried to impress upon them our respect for their independence and individualism. And unfortunately, that's what we got. <laughs> uh, and we love them both. I mean, they're both wonderful, bright, thoughtful, committed kids. Um, and they're not just different politically. I mean, they're different temperamentally. They're, they could, could not be more different. And sometimes you wonder, like, how's that possible? Yeah. Same household, same parents, same, right. you know, same I mean, you same took diet. Jake with you campaigning. Yeah, he used to be, he, he campaigned for me, with me, in... Uh, 2008 for Obama in the snows of New Hampshire. And this was before he had this metamorphosis. Where he's hosting speaking <laughs> engagements at Stanford. Yes. Uh, and he's just, you know, he's gone his own way politically, but not emotionally. Yeah. He's still very much uh, my baby and very much... Um, a, a, an integral part of our family. Mm. And so we, you know, we have some robust debates. Uh, and sometimes at the dinner table, food will fly. <laughs> Mostly between the kids, yeah. I'd like to yeah. believe, but Ian is here, so I'm not going to state that categorically. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> he knows better. But uh, it's, it's, it's all good. And I've learned a lot from having somebody so close to us who reflects and represents a very different perspective. Yeah. And one that I think is really important for me to understand, but for all of us to understand, regardless of you know, whether you're on the right or the left, understanding or in the middle more <laughs> like some of us want to be, <laughs> um, respecting opinions with which we differ and being willing to engage them you know, uh, thoughtfully. Yeah. Well, that's, it's so great to see that you were able to raise such independent thinkers, well. in addition to doing everything else that you and Ian had going on. Um, so hats off for that. Um, and then also, you know, I was struck by, actually, it's, it's such a coincidence that Shonda Rhimes is going to speak next, because Shonda Rhimes review, was one of the people who read your book first. And she said that reading your book was like a master class in how to be a powerful woman. I think reading your book is like a master class in how to be a powerful person. And um, many of us think that being a powerful woman equals being a career woman. But you know, Susan, you told a different story in your book. You talked not about just being a career woman. In fact, I think a, a half of that book is about how to be a loving wife, a devoted mother, 
and also caring for your parents, both of them, when they were aging, and I know they've now both since passed. At the same time, you're making these incredibly hard decisions and in the public eye, met with a great deal of scrutiny. You wrote about a great deal of scrutiny when you know, your mom was watching you, you said, obsessively on CNN during the Benghazi uh, story. Not watching me, but watching the news watching and the freaking news. out about me. Yes. Right. And so amidst all that, you, you know, I want to know, Susan, like, what do you think it takes to be a powerful woman or a powerful person? What are the traits? <laughs> I would say, in the first instance, it, it, it requires confidence. It requires believing in your own self-worth. And that's the huge gift I got from my parents. Um, I think it requires integrity and strength and compassion, quite frankly. I think being powerful means not being hard. It means being, um, to the greatest extent possible, somebody who can lead and inspire and motivate others. And one of the things I learned as I grew uh, from that young, brash assistant secretary was that the secret to having effective teams is that, that every member of the team feels valued and feels like they, they care and that, you, that they count, uh, that you care about them and that they count. And so to me, that, that's the secret sauce. It's... Um, it's leading in a fashion that values the individuals and the human beings on the team. And um, the model, quite frankly, that President Obama set and that I, and I think others tried to manifest was to give all of our colleagues the confidence to know that if and when they had to put their personal lives first because somebody was sick uh, or their kid needed them for something important, that the team would fill in behind them and that we would manage collectively in their absence. Not, none of us was indispensable. Not when I was national security advisor, never. I had partners and deputies who could fill in and at the lowest levels, that was the, the way we tried to run our teams. If you had to go to do what was vitally important to you as a human being, then that was what was most important. Not least because you weren't gonna be effective anyway if you were right, stressing out about yeah. this, but also because it's a way of saying we care about you and we value you as a human being and we got your back and we as a team can fill in behind you. Um, and that I think is empowering to one's team and one's people, but it's also in many ways a source of one's own strength as a leader. So speaking of being a leader and leadership, you have another, I mean, I'm curious what you think about then all of the traits you're mentioning make me think, well, I would really like to work for that person. I really like them. And one of um, the favorite quotes that I have of yours is you said, and I quote, people who are so intent on being liked may not have the fortitude to do the right thing or the tough thing. And so what advice would you give to leaders? A lot of leaders, including some in this room, really want to be liked. Um, well, I think, look, it's always better to be liked than not be liked. Let's be clear. But, but what I discovered at some stage was, at least for me, I, if I had to choose, if I couldn't have both, I'd rather be respected than liked. 
And that was because I realized that sometimes, and I, this is sort of reflected in the quote you read, sometimes by being overly concerned about being nice, particularly women who sometimes that manifests as being deferential or asking for permission or affirmation, it's, it's not effective. And it is diminishing of your capacity to perform to your optimal level. And I realized that just by being me, by believing in myself, by being an African-American woman who really wasn't asking for permission or affirmation in the circles in which I ran, that some people weren't going to like that. You said that you intimidated a lot of people, most notably. Some men, but that wasn't, I mean, I didn't set out to do that, but I think, and I still don't set out to do that. I'm just trying to be myself, but I'm not going to be somebody I'm not to make somebody else more comfortable. Well, I love that you've embraced those characteristics of yourself. And and that's, you know, that leads you to being not always liked. And if you're so obsessed with being liked, I think it can lead you to be somebody you're not. And as I said, uh, better to be liked. I much prefer that, but not at the expense of being who I am. Well, we're going to get to it. I wanted to tell a story which I thought was fake news, and then I asked you about it, and you said it was true. It's not fake news. It's in the book. I know where it's, it's going. Well, then I read it, and I thought, oh, this is, this is true. Um, there's a situation where at one time you had to give the middle finger to Ambassador Richard Holbrook in front of a room full of ambassadors and diplomats. Can you tell us about that? So... We're rewinding the tape again to this to the time. brash days. <laughs> no, but this was not brash. This was okay. this was <laughs> this was implementing a philosophy that my father had beat into me from a very early age, which was don't take crap off of anybody. If somebody is bullying you or dismissing you or discounting you, don't let them get away with it. Now, I'd like to think that. At 55, I might have found words that would have been more appropriate, but words failed me in that moment, and I ended up realizing that my hands had not failed me. (laughs) But the backstory is that I'm Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. I'm probably now 33 or 34. Ambassador Holbrook had been nominated to be the UN ambassador, but not confirmed. His confirmation had been held up for many months. And one day, uh, I'm up on Capitol Hill meeting with members of Congress, and my secretary calls on, you know, remember those cell phones that were the size of bricks? That was what we were dealing with back in those days. (laughs) And she says, Ambassador Holbrook is in your office, and he wants to meet with you now. And I said, well, I'm sure you explained I'm on Capitol Hill meeting with members of Congress. I can't just come back to meet with him now. Why don't you schedule an appointment and we'll we'll figure it out? And she said, he's not leaving. And I said, well, okay, then I'll see him when I get back. But that's going to be a while and make sure he doesn't take anything while I'm there. (laughs) Uh, So I come back about an hour and a half later and sure enough, he's sitting in my office you know, very comfortable on my couch. And I sit down and I introduce myself because we'd never met. And I say, what's so urgent that you had to be camped out here in my office? And the first words out of his mouth were, I dislike you already. 
because you beat my record as the youngest regional assistant secretary of state. And our relationship went downhill from there. <laughs> and I realized, you know, I was dealing with a very talented, you know, diplomat on the one hand, but a classic bully on the other. Um, so now, a few, maybe a year later, he's UN ambassador, he's established in the job, and he decides in the month that the United States is chairing the Security Council that he's gonna make it the month of Africa. Africa already consumes a large share of the Security Council agenda. And that meant that we had to interact quite a bit. And he decided he was gonna have a summit meeting with the African heads of state from Central Africa. And he therefore summoned these heads of state, and of course he was only an ambassador, so he had to have the Secretary of State at least be the person to chair the meeting. And he summoned back the ambassadors who reported to me, who were the ambassadors in each of these Central African countries. And he calls a meeting on a Sunday afternoon in his office in New York. And in the meeting are my maybe six or seven of the ambassadors who report to me, all of whom are 20 to 30 years my senior, um, all men, all white, and a handful of my staffers, and Holbrook and a few of his team, and there's a robust argument that we're all engaged in about a real important policy issue. And at one stage, after I'd listened to the debate, I weighed in with my own opinion, which differed from his. And he leans over this table where we're all seated in a very cramped room, he's a big guy with a hulking body, and he looks at me and he says, ah, I too, remember when I was a young assistant secretary. <laughs> and I was like. And that's where words failed you. That's where words failed me. <laughs> and so I did exhibit my dismay with a gesture, <laughs> which was displayed long enough for him to see it. Yeah. And everybody else to see it and like freak out. Some with real relish and others with horror. <laughs> And he just kept talking, and that meeting continued. It became a bit urban legend, but I, the, the, the end of the story is I realized that I had better discreetly step out of the meeting and call back to Washington. To, to your boss, then to Madeline Albright, To the Secretary Albright, of State, right? whom I called in. I said, Madam Secretary, I'm calling to report that I've just given a f the finger to a member of President Clinton's cabinet. <laughs> she said, oh, it, tell me more. <laughs> so I explained, and at the end she said words to the effect of, you go girl. <laughs> well, so fast forward from the brash, um, the brash woman that you once were, Susan, and I want to go right into kind of one of the issues that consumed a lot of your time when you were working for President Obama was China. And now it seems like China's taken even more of a center stage. Of course, a lot of people in this audience were talking a lot about tech and China and government and tech, or maybe not government and tech. Um, and I wanna ask if you agree or disagree with a, a statement um, that I pulled. Actually, I won't tell you who said this. I wanna see if you agree or disagree that China poses one of the most severe intelligence collection threats to the United States and to US businesses today. Yes, agree. And, and, very strenuously. And they're doing it not with traditional spycraft anymore, 
but with putting actually agents in private companies and in graduate programs and universities in the US. Like, how should industry leaders in this room think about that and grapple with that? Well, China is not only using human assets, as you just described, uh, plants or moles, but they're also using cyber tools, as we know, to, to steal uh, intellectual property and exfiltrate data. I think that the most important thing that I would just share as a former national security advisor is this threat is deadly serious and it's not getting any better. And China's objective, quite plainly, is to compete and ultimately surpass us economically, geostrategically, technologically. And in fact, they're explicitly stating it as their objective. And what they are doing to accomplish that is basically using any means at their potential disposal. And what we need to do as a nation, and I think it applies as much to the government as it does to the private sector, is to be witting of this threat and work really hard to prevent it, recognizing that you know that the, the most dangerous uh, individuals are often the ones inside, as we in the United States government have learned the hard way many times with Snowden and others, that you, you really do need to take as seriously as you possibly can the hardening of your uh, your cyber security, that you also need to recognize that you know in your effort and work to get a foothold or expand your uh, business in China, that as they ask you to do things that cause you to share information or you know uh, provide the kinds of access or information that they seek, they're doing it at our expense, mm -hmm. geostrategically. Um, and I think, quite honestly, we really need a revolution of patriotism in business as well as in the tech sector, but as well as across the, the, the greater American public to recognize that you know, we are, unfortunately, in a kind of Cold War type challenge. That's not to say we have to treat China as an adversary. I actually don't argue that. But we have to recognize that we are in a real competition that requires us to behave as if we're in a competition, not as if everything is, you know, yeah. go along to get along. And, and you coined that term today, didn't you? The revolution of patriotism. And so. I asked if you'd ever said that before. And you thought that the revolution of patriotism needs to happen in the tech community. It needs to happen including in the tech community. And how do we get that exclusively. started? And by the reason why yeah. we were talking about the tech community, just so people are, real, are understanding, given that we are in a era of arguably existential competition, we need to be matching to the extent we can consistent with our democracy and our values. The strength of the Chinese model. The Chinese, as you all know, are using all elements of their capacity, government, the private sector, academia, in complete unison 
to advance their capacities, whether in biotech or AI or you name it. We're not. We now have lost that historical triumvirate between the academy, the private sector, and government that enabled us to compete against the Soviet Union. And there are all kinds of reasons why that's broken down, but it's the animosity between uh, elements in the tech world towards government and arguably vice versa that is in part preventing mm -hmm. our capacity to concert our efforts consistent with our values and free enterprise and all of that stuff that we need to to be competitive. We need to find ways to put that triumvirate in some form or fashion back together. Not, you know, not at the expense of our values, but in service of our strength and our competitiveness and ultimately our way of life. Well, so there are a lot of leaders from the tech community in this room, and I'm just curious, how do you think we can get some of that collaboration going again, practically? Well, I don't have all the answers to that, but I do think it needs to, it could be catalyzed by a, a sustained exchange that was institutionalized between the private sector and government. And we've got really smart, talented people in government. We've got even more smart, talented people in the private sector. And I think there's, particularly among, you know, some in the employee base in the tech sector, a real suspicion of or hostility towards government and a, a perception that if you're working on something that serves the US government and particularly might advantage us technologically or militarily, that somehow there's something wrong with that. And that's what I mean about a revolution in patriotism. We need to understand that actually, you know, we're on the same team here. Yeah. And by the way, to the extent that, that many companies are making compromises and accommodations to open the Chinese market and expand their foothold in the Chinese market, doing things that quite frankly, in my judgment, advantage China in this competition, but then won't be comfortable cooperating with the US government. I think we've got things kind of upside down. Yeah. And so a partnership whereby, you know, for three, five years, you know, best and the brightest in, in both government and industry, you know, basically change places, trade mm -hmm. places for a little while and learn to understand and respect the motives and the perspectives and the skills and the weaknesses of each would be at least a starting yeah. point for trying to um, establish bridges and, and, and recognize that we, we are, just as we are in many other ways, you know, we have more that unites us than divides us. Well, and I suppose you're bringing, you're on the board of Netflix. What, what kind of voice are you bringing to that boardroom and what are some of the skills and experiences from your own past that you're bringing to bear? Are you having these conversations? Well, I think that the main thing that I bring is a deep knowledge and understanding about many, many different parts of the world and in the international landscape uh, to a company like Netflix that is increasingly uh, growing globally and views its you know its path forward as being very much in the the international realm. I have an understanding of you know of crisis management and how government works and how to make teams optimize 
their capacity to address crises uh, under pressure, all of those sorts of things. And also an understanding of the security terrain, physical and, and cyber and otherwise. Um, and a recognition that you know some of the things we've just talked about, yeah. uh, which may not be necessarily front of mind uh, far from Washington, are actually some of the things that companies need to be increasingly mindful of. We've covered so much. We've covered, you know, you've written a book, you serve on boards, you speak. You're about to be an empty nester, oh. a year and a half. Um, and I want to just wrap up by asking you, what's next? What lies ahead? We couldn't just end this. Well, tell me, what, tell, tell the audience what you told me when I asked you this question before once. Uh, I'll, I'll, without the profanity? Yeah, okay. with, please. No. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I love my freedom, which I now have, having left government. And I've enjoyed very much the process of writing the book and now going on book tour. And I love writing my columns with the New York Times. And I love serving on Netflix board. And, and I'm interested in continuing to uh, participate in board service. But the, the fundamental question that I have to wrestle with is, do I want to throw myself again full time into any one intensive endeavor, whether that's you know, in the public sector, in the private sector, in the nonprofit world, or do I want to continue to have a combination of things, which some people call a portfolio, that allows me to maximize my freedom? And I love maximizing my freedom, but I do think I might wake up one day and be so grabbed by something that I'm passionate about that I'm willing to jump back in and throw myself entirely into it. And you told me today you're not running for Senate in 2020, but you told me that you weren't ruling out for all time. I wasn't, I'm not running for the Senate in, from Maine in 2020, is, which <laughs> is something I thought about for a period of time. Um, and that's mainly because we have this uh, junior in high school who deserves to have her, her parents present um, and not be yanked out of one high school into another. But I haven't given up. Uh, the thought that I might serve again, whether in an elected capacity and I don't know at what level or in an appointed capacity, but I'm also not planning on it and aiming for it. I feel very privileged to be able to say that I got to serve this country under two presidents that I had enormous respect for, and that's the, the greatest privilege. Um, and if I, you know, if, if that's, the last of my service, I'll feel good about it, and I'll uh, be happy to try to take my talents elsewhere. Well, <laughs> so to speak. Well, Susan, I'm, it's such a privilege to sit down with you, and I want to say thank you for your no, service you. to our no, country. Thank you. Um, on behalf of everyone in the room, and also for joining us here today, it's been so great to get to chat with you and, thank you and have all. this conversation. Appreciate so, you thank you so me. much. It's great to be with you.